So pastoral methodologies would be like, okay, a queer person comes out to you, what do you do? Like in that moment, what, what do you say from that point? Hey pastor, I think I'm gay. Or hey pastor, I think I'm trans. Hey pastor, I'm bi, pan, etc. What do you do in that moment? We need to address those methodologies because a lot of pastors in that moment would, or people in spiritual leadership at all would, would, would probably jump to, well, the Bible says, and it's like, that's not what they need to hear right now. So that's what I mean, like pastoral methodologies. We need to really sit down and think about those pastoral methodologies. But I think that that will come once we do a better theology of what it means to be queer. A theology of queerness that looks beyond just sex and marriage and discusses all the different aspects of it such that even if you maintain a traditional biblical sex ethic, if you go around saying that being gay is broken, it would be shown that you're not necessarily being um, rigorous enough in how you think about what it means to be queer. Welcome back to Advent Next, a theological podcast curated for curious faith discussions. This week, we are on part two of our talk with Pastor Paul Anthony Turner on the queer experience and the relationship of the church with the LGBTQ community. We continue to discuss the challenges of being a side B queer Christian, along with how pastoral methodologies can improve in order to have a greater missional impact with the underserved needs of the LGBTQ community. We discuss the importance of friendship and the journey of singleness and what it really means to act as the family of God, prioritizing people over concepts. You can follow Pastor Paul Anthony Turner at paul.anthony.turner on Instagram. If you have additional questions after this program, feel free to direct message us on Instagram or Facebook. We want to thank the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. If you're not already following us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, be sure to find us at the handle at AdventNext. I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and you can find me and all the quirky things that I'm up to at the handle at Kendra Arsenal. But this is AdventNext. I, I, I do have a question because, you know, as someone who is a side B proponent, I mean, I that's a painful choice to have come to, right? That's not, I mean, you're not... Uh, I don't know what, what you see your future as, but like, how, how is it that you have come to this decision? Because it seems like it's against your own interest, right? To be a side B uh, uh, proponent, because you're saying, I, my sexual orientation is homosexual, but I will uh, abide by the, the Christian normatives of heterosexuality. And I think that there is, uh, you know, by my faith, I believe that that's there in scripture. I mean, how do you come to that? And is that fully reconciled with you? And where are some areas that you're like, you know, uh, really struggling to keep that together as far as theologically? Um, anyway, just, just curious. Yeah. Um, oof, mercy. And actually, <laughs> before I answer that, I want, I want to um, 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 speak on something you said. I wouldn't, I don't, I don't um, stand by the uh, Christian heteronormatives. I think, I believe heteronormativity is very toxic. Um, but what I, what I would say is I, because I don't, for instance, I don't believe Adam and Eve were heterosexual. I just believe they were sexually attracted to each other. Um, so I, I guess maybe what I would say is I would, I stand by a tradition, uh, I stand by a traditional biblical sex ethic, um, as, at least as it pertains to sex and marriage. But anyways, just to clarify that for anyone who okay. might have heard yeah. anyone. Um, Help educate me. I want to be nuanced like you. I want to be able to have these conversations with nuance. So please educate us. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, when it comes to the part about, yeah, it's very difficult. And I'll, I'll tell you right now, like the last three weeks have been hell. Let <laughs> this be real. Like, Lord, have all the music. It's been hell. It has. Absolutely. It's hard. And you want to know something? The part about it all is not not having sex, not personally. I, 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 I'm, 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 I'm good there. I'm, I know there's some people who get hotter, a lot hotter, and, and so it becomes a little more problematic. That's not the part for me that's most concerning. The part for me is that I live in a society that, I, that idolizes marriage. Mm. It puts marriage on this, this pedestal that the Bible speaks nothing about. But then it dares to put the Bible under that pedestal as a foundation for it. The Bible what does not substantiate these, these um, marital idolatrous um, practices that we have. 
We okay. go around saying marriage is the greatest relationship in the world. Marriage is where you find the greatest love. Um, you need to be married to be uh, to be a full human. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Because last time I checked, Jesus is the second Adam and Jesus right. is a single lady. Right. Did I miss something? <laughs> People are all saying that marriage is the best thing ever and we need to be married in order to be the best human ever but or our full to live it to our, our our full human experience but i'm just like jesus was single jesus is humanity he right. is the new humanity he is everything that we ought to be how can we then say that our god and savior is basically he basically would not be able to fit into the, the marriage club he right. basically i i just i it's absolutely ridiculous to me and then the very clear things that it seems that he and Paul are saying um, in the Bible about marriage um, seem to be unequivocal in, 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 in explaining that marriage is not the state, this thing you need to, to strive toward. I mean, Paul says very clear, very clear. He spends an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, explaining that celibacy is the preferred mode of living for the kingdom of God in unequivocal terms. Um, and then Jesus, in responding to his disciples, one time when his disciples say, well, if all these things that you just said are true, Jesus, then it seems like it would be better for us to not be, for us to not get married. And Jesus said, some people can't accept this teaching. Yeah. And then um, when, the, when the Pharisees tried Jesus with that, with, with what they, what they thought was going to be a trick question um, of talking about marriage, Jesus says, don't you know, there's not going to be marriage in heaven. Now, for each one of those things that I said, there is an explanation for each one of them. Um, and I'm not, I'm not dissing on the explanation that people give, but I think that sometimes we, I think that a lot of the, 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 the need that people feel to come back and, and fight against, challenge the clearness, what seems to be the clearness of those scriptures comes from a place where we can't conceive of our lives without our, without a marriage partner. And I think that whether or not my interpretation of those scriptures is wrong, we need to address that attitude. Yeah. Whether or not there's going to be marriage, even if there is marriage in the next life, um, even if um, Paul, you know, what, whatever, even if we still need to address the, the idolatry with which we have approached marriage. Because right. it can make you feel more alone and more excluded from the Christian community uh, than to celebrate a life of singleness. Yeah. And, and I think of scriptures like where, where Jesus, where, um, where we, you know, in response when people say, um, you know, the greatest love is found in marriage. I'm sorry, wait, greater love has no man than this, than that a man yeah. should leave his, 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 his life for his spouse. No. What is that? No. Friend. <laughs> And also, if we consider the majority of relationships in the Bible were friendships, they were the majority of uh, the majority of the stories. And someone can challenge me on that, but we're got to go point by point and look at these stories. The majority of the intimate relationships mentioned in the Bible are arguably friendships, mentorships, and so forth. Jonathan and David. That's one. Jonathan and David. Jesus and John. John was the beloved disciple. Um, Jesus and Peter. I mean, Paul and Titus. Paul and Timothy. Um, Ruth and Naomi. Uh, I mean, okay. Keep going. okay yes we, yeah. we need to really look at those stories yeah. and wise and, and and wisely discern okay it doesn't really seem the bible puts any preference any it doesn't really make a hierarchy out of any relationship all all relationships should have they innately have what i would say equal access to being just as loving and intimate as the others. In other words, even though there are the different types of relationships will have their appropriate, the appropriate ways in which the love will be manifest, that does not mean that the quality of the love is supposed to be greater in one, in, in one type of relationship and less than another. Um, the way I think about it is, you know, God is love. God is, I believe God is consistent in everything that, in everything that he is. Therefore, he is consistent in his love. Therefore, love itself is a, is, is consistent and homogenous all throughout. And really, it's just a matter of, are we going to choose to pour that love into people? Right. Or are we going to withhold it? And often you find in our culture, 
and this is the pain that I deal with, you find that because of the narrative that idolizes marriage, it makes it really difficult to connect with people because your love becomes, I've talked to so many people about this, gosh, I was talking to my best friend about this. I've talked to him so many times about it, my mom about it, several of my close friends. You, people don't know how to be good friends. Mm. And therefore people don't know how to be good spouses. We, we don't know how to love each other well. We don't know how to pour in each other because we were taught you're supposed to reserve the best and most passionate and deepest intimacies that you can manifest and save it for this one person. I don't believe in that. When I look at the Bible, I don't see, I just don't see that. Um, even the people who, you know, <laughs> this idea that, um, that marriage is this thing where you're supposed to find the, the highest form of love, that's, a, that's like a recent post-enlightenment romantic era way of thinking. No one, ancient, no one prior to that time in any culture virtually thought of marriage as being this, um, this end-all, be-all um, relationship in which I find the deepest affection. If you read ancient Greek literature, um, you would find philosophers, for instance, talking about the love between men is the strongest relationship. And they're not, some of them may have been talking sex, sexual relationships, some weren't. And they were just discussing like your friends are supposed to be like your friends are where you're supposed to find your deepest affections. Right. Um, and even though I wouldn't go so far as what they would, would say, because again, I, I'm not, I don't want to make um, one type of relationship better than another, but it's just more to challenge us to think are the ways that we think about marriage biblical or are they just the results of a culture um, the results, the results of our culture, and what are what are the what are the impacts of that thing, of that thing on, on single people? Like when I go to meet to make friends often, or even friendships that I'm currently in, I've lost not lost, but a lot of the relationships I've had with people have become radically changed once once they got married. Married, married. yeah. No, I, a friend. This I'm telling you, have this conversation all the time too, which is I'm yeah. so glad that you're bringing this. Up. Like off camera, let's just go on a rant one day. Let's yes. just do. It. Let's just grab a cup of uh, non-caffeinated, be non-alcoholic beverage. And <laughs> my caffeine in my cup, just to let you know. <laughs> we can just go off, sis. Like, I'm ready. Because, no, and, and I was even chastising myself the other day, and I was telling my friends this, because I'm like, there is no reason why I should value a text message from this person who I hardly know that I'm quote interested in, then, then the, 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 the lines upon lines and reams upon reams of texts and, and love and affirmation that I get from my friends. Like, this is sinful. <laughs> I was literally like, this is wrong. Why am I not valuing this the way that I should? And so my whole thing is, yes. yes. Save that. Like, <laughs> let's actually call a spade a spade. It is sinful. And it's, I think, it, I think it's very, I think it's dishonorable. I don't think it's coming from a place where people, and again, I want to be gracious, even as I rebuke it. I don't think it's coming from a place where people are trying to do wrong. I think that people are trying to live up to what they have been told is right. Mm -hmm. So I want to give them that grace. But at the same time, I want to call it sinful because we're saying, like you were just saying, this one person, because of this way they make me feel, which again, we should break that down. Where does that kind of stuff even come from? But anyway, um, <laughs> we, because of the way they make me feel or because of, of the scripts I've been handed down, they should, all of the love I was giving to other people <clears throat> needs to become shunted to them. And it's just like, wait a second. This person, this other person has been in your life for five, 10, 15 years. They've been with you when you went to commit suicide. They were with you in, when, in grade school. They were with you when you went to college. They were, they, they're, they're running by your prayer partner. And you mean that one person comes into your life yeah. and all of a sudden it clouds your judgment, your ability to still appreciate those relationships. That smacks of idolatry and it smacks of un, un, unhealth to me. Yeah, because you're putting all your eggs in this one basket. Um, now, don't get me wrong; marriage is a is a unique relationship, but unique does not does does not mean innately more important or higher or greater. It just means it's unique, kind of like the parental the parent child relationship. It's unique. Mm -hmm. That doesn't make it better than all the others. I think my big thing is that we need to make ourselves accessible to each other. 
Yes, because you don't know what people are going through. And, and, and the fact that, and this is just, okay, this is such a weird analogy, but it, I don't know if you remember Coco the gorilla, right? The, the, the gorilla that could sign language. Anyway, this is going to be so tangential. Don't judge me. <laughs> but, but, you know, she never uh, basically uh, made it in, in, in captivity. And one of the uh, reasons for that is that gorillas are social and usually they have, a, there's a lot more females in a family to one male, right? So she has a lot of social support when she's entering into that type of relationship. And I feel like women are, are kind of that way. Like we need a lot of social support uh, whether we're entering into any type of relationship. So anyway, it's, it's, it's an example of the fact that I really think we are wired for multiple types of relationships and communities. And to put that upon one person just feels like, you know, you, you are not getting the richness that you were created to, to have and to receive and be a part of. I think that's a fantastic point. And to add to that, you're also robbing someone else of that richness. When you, when we get married, we, when we get, when people get married, they often become closed off. They don't, they're no longer physically interact, physically interactive with, other, with each other. Like you don't, you, you, in order to prove that they're faithful to their spouse, you, they might not touch you anymore. You're, you're, um, you won't touch their friends anymore. They won't emotionally or spiritually connect with, with their friends anymore in order again, to prove that they're being faithful to their spouse. But it's like, again, David and Jonathan, David had a lot of women. Now, David was not a healthy person. So I want to, I don't want to make it seem as if he was perfect. He was not for all his mistakes, for all his mistakes. I think that he got, I think that there's something very beautiful in the way he worked. He did his relationship with Jonathan, or at least it points to something that I think that we need to capture. And that's that, all relationships should have at least equal, the equal equal access to being profound, profoundly deep and desirable. We need to learn, I was, I was talking last night with a group, group of young adults and made the point, we need to practice falling in love with each other. It's very deep, it's very, excuse me, it's very difficult because of the ways we've been told, I sh- we, you should not feel this way about anyone but your spouse. You certainly shouldn't feel about this way about someone of the same sex. Right. Like, and it, it, it will take practice because we have spent decades in, in, in many Western societies digging into these values, these unbiblical values. It's going to take a while. So we have to practice for, let me give you some examples of what I mean. Practice when you hug your friends insofar as it's appropriate and safe. You know, obviously there are some people you should not hug from the front. <laughs> I'm not a woman, but I know, I just know. I'm sorry that you guys have to go through that. <laughs> But insofar as it's safe, practice holding, hugging, cuddling with your friends. Jesus and John. John was laying on the bosom of Christ on the day uh, at the the way that they um, the way that they were um, they were lounging around the around the table. John, the beloved disciple, beloved by who? Jesus was laying on Jesus's uh, was laying on Jesus's chest. Um. We need to be comfortable with physical touch like that. It takes practice and it takes, it takes trust, um, but we, we need to practice that. And we need to practice looking deeply into each other's eyes and or just like really seeing people for who they are. Um, I feel like sometimes we don't really, we don't really appreciate the beauty. Like looking at you, you're a very beautiful person, but often we feel uncomfortable exchanging compliments with one another, with appreciating just how amazing someone is and, you know, fawning over someone or just, you know, we don't practice that. And it's painful because then I look at the scriptures where like John, when David, excuse me, when Jonathan was killed, David wrote this beautiful poem in response to that, his best friend, the, the person he loved more than all women. We know David loved women. David loved him a woman. <laughs> he loved him a woman. But he, he wrote this beautiful poem um, describing his, his agony that he had lost something so, so wonderful to him. There was um, Michelangelo, um, the painter and everything else, everything that he did, um, wrote these beautiful poems about this man that he was deeply in love with. Um, even though they weren't sexually active, um, to the best of, best of my knowledge, um, he, he wrote these beautiful poems you know, about, about his friend talking about how you know, describe many countless poems about how his friend was like the sum of all beauty and how much he, how much he loved this person. 
we don't do that. We don't feel comfortable to, to share those feelings with each other. So we have to practice that. Um, and we need to practice being vulnerable with each other, um, especially men. Um, we need to practice being vulnerable with each other. So that, you know, by doing these kinds of things, you know, being physically, um, being physically accessible to each other, being emotionally accessible and, and loving on each other very deeply. I think that's how we're going to, I think those are some of the ways by which we can practice falling in love with each other. I think some of the bickering that we have going on, the warring that we have between each other is because we don't, we don't have a very deep passion for each other. So I think we need to practice that. And I think that that would uh, a lot of times make us kinder with each other, more generous and graceful, um, gracious toward each other. Hmm, I love that. I love that. So th- there's so much in that area to explore and we will definitely have our off-camera rant. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm curious what you might think about. So people who you know might identify uh, predominantly as gay, but they want to try marriage uh, with someone of the opposite sex, known as like a, they're called what? Mixed orientation marriages. What are your thoughts on mixed orientation marriages? You know, do you know any people who are in them? How, how does this work? And is that, yeah. Thoughts. I know a few actually. Um, it is not for I. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, ladies, just in case. <laughs> I, I, I uh, yeah, I've had some offers. I was actually, <laughs> this last <laughs> I, I, one time I, when I, when I came out, um, at one time, at one, one time when I was pastoring, um, I had a friend I was making friends, I was making really close friends with, and, um, she's a great person, wonderful person. And I, I love her. Yeah, she's, she's wonderful. <laughs> um, I was pastoring and I shared, I came out to my church, terrible idea, bad, 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 bad. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> oh my gosh. He's gay. And even though he's celibate, he's so problematic, but whatever. Um, I came out to young adults and she was there present at the meeting where I came out. It was no way you could miss it. Why the next day she was like, yo, can we go out? (laughs) My mom jokes around, she says, Paul, these women don't care. They don't care that you're, that you're gay. That's just the challenge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, um, it's not, it's not for I, I mean, God could change things, but I honestly, I'm not looking to get married. I just want to have deep community. I don't really, I don't really feel this pressing need to get married. I want deep community. Yeah. And recently I've gone through the last three weeks has, have been very difficult for me because I have felt very alone because I have just been very keenly aware of everyone's getting paired off and people are, I'm seeing my friends who I, who I know love me. Are being swallowed up in this in this in this narrative mm. and it's painful to watch and it's painful to receive so i don't even need to get married i just want that community now for gay people um who are side b people who get married to people of the opposite sex more power to them and i think that there's a certain beauty to what they're doing because they're demonstrating i think they're actually tapping into something that is very pre-romantic view of marriage um where, let me, wait a second. Yeah. This, um, I've been reading this book on and off, Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage um, by okay. Stephanie Kuntz. I believe she's done 30 years of, of marriage on, um, 30 years of, of, of history of marriage. And she demonstrates how the idea that marriage was, is to be founded on this strong sense of romance would have been absolutely would have been absurd to people living prior, you know, living, living way back. Um, people didn't think of marriage as being this place where they, where the main goal was, was experiencing um, this sexual or romantic um, fulfillment. For them, for 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 them, it was about um, being committed to each other, binding families together, being supporting for each other. And when romance did come, when those feelings of you know love and, and so forth did come, um, it that was wonderful. But that wasn't the grounds. And she actually demonstrates, I think, it, it really well that the reason why you see a lot of um, why you see such a high divorce rate nowadays is because we've drunk and excuse me, we've drunk excuse me so deeply 
of this idea that marriage is supposed to be this, this romantic, um, it's supposed to be this place where I feel all these, the fulfillment of all these great desires. So when you don't have the commitment there and you don't have the feelings anymore, well, the thing falls apart. Mm. But what I think that I see in mixed orientation marriages is a great, is a call back to commitment because one of the partners might not always be feeling this great sense of romance or, or sexual thrill or whatever. And the other partner might not be receiving, they might be wanting to express that, but not be able to receive it. So the, it's, but they're, they're staying together because they want to bind their families together and they want to give, um, bear witness to, um, they want to bear witness to what marriage ought to really be about ultimately. And that's about a certain kind of commitment to one, to one another. So I think it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. I would tell people, if you're thinking about doing it, be very prayerful about it because, you know, there and see if, it, if God is calling you to it because, um, it, it is, it is from what I've seen, it, it can be very challenging, but you know, marriages that do have people who are sexually attracted with each other are difficult. I don't think the difficulty of it indicates that it's wrong or not helpful or expedient. Um, we just need to be, we just need to take stock and inventory of, of the difficulties that could arise there. I could not, I don't have Jesus. Don't call me to it. <laughs> don't do it. I will end up in the belly of a fish. I'll come right now. Don't do it. <laughs> I'm sorry, ladies. You're letting down a lot of women right now who had hopes, maybe. <laughs> oh, my. Listen, listen. I'm telling Jesus right now. I'm the flesh, the spirit ain't willing, and the flesh is <laughs> the flesh Spirit is not willing and the flesh is gay. <laughs> I'm screaming. We are crazy. Okay, this is so good. So you as, you know, identifying as side B, do you feel um do you feel welcome like in 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 your church community and in the queer community? Like do you find uh, yourself kind of not being welcome in either community and how have you navigated that? That's a great question. The, I recently, um, left my local church. The, I removed my membership from my local church. My family did because of some abusive things they did to me and my family. And so I, I just recently removed my, removed my membership. Um, so, and you know, even though I hold very, I hold to the views that are that are very that very much dovetail with our denomination's views. They don't like the fact that I call myself gay. They don't like the fact that I celebrate that the fact that I'm gay. They don't like that I'm out and proud about it and so forth. Even though at base my theology is, is not out of line with our church's teachings. And I was censured and so forth. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm done with this. Yeah. And we're gonna do a Facebook Live on it and another. Anyways. And that's only because they would not allow me to actually share my my views with the church at large, and they were they were doing behind the scenes um, stuff to mm-hmm. prevent me and my family from participating in the church. Um, and the conservative side of the church, I receive less. Actually, let me start. The, yeah, let me, let me start. The, let me start with the liberal side of the church. There, I receive a greater a pretty because of where because of how nuanced I think about this matter because I celebrate queerness because I advocate for side a inclusion in the church because of all these different ways I think very nuanced about this a lot of side a people even though they disagree with my view on marriage they're willing to say oh you're but you're still advocating for us you still celebrate the fact that you're queer so you haven't dissociated with us so even if we disagree with you on this one point we still accept you. We want you here. I've had a lot of side A people reach out. I mean, people, I have side A people who come to me for counseling to share their stories and they know I'm side B and yet they still come because they know I have a very nuanced perspective where I'm not going to let my theology on this matter diminish their humanity. And furthermore, I think so. I think robustly enough on this matter that I'm able to come together on the other billion other aspects of queerness that no one talks about but are just as much there. Um, when it comes to 
so yeah, by and large, like I don't really get any problems from the from the larger LGBT plus community. I just don't. Some of them are like, oh, I just hope that you I hope that you give up those beliefs one day because it seems I hope it's not hurting you. You know, that's basically where it comes from. There might be a few who see me as Uncle Tomish, but I was like, oh, whatever. You can't win all. The conservative side is where I get is we I get pushed back very cons or the side that has the traditional view. I'll say it that way. That's where I get the more more pushback. I get a lot. Of, I get a lot more pushback. I really don't get much pushback from the, from the liberal side of things. I get I get it from the conservative side. Ironically, it's like I I actually on the thing that actually is of concern to you, I actually hold to the same view as you. It's 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 very strange. Like you believe that marriage is only between one woman and one man. I believe the same thing. What's the problem? You don't like the fact that I call myself gay. I am gay. You don't like the fact that I call it that I celebrate the fact that I'm gay. Well, I'm sorry. I think about this more robustly than just Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. That's you know. So um, how is and it's, I don't mean to interject, but how is the side B community received from non uh, Christians who are queer? Is that something? What's oh, that relationship it's going to be probably like? seen as unhealthy. They're, they would probably, yeah, they view us as unhealthy. Um, as a whole, the L, the larger LGBT community sees the probably looks more with pity or disdain on the L, on the side B community. On the more individual level, you're going to find individual as we as we engage individually, you'll find people who are more willing to recognize. Oh, okay, this is just where you are. You'll find largely that. I, I at least found largely that the LGBT plus community at large, you know, outside of Christianity is probably more or less does not look very favor, favorably on LGBT Christians at all, whether you're side A, side B, because of the, understandably, because of the pain, um, many LGBT people who are not, were formerly Christians and left because of how they were, how they were treated. And so they see all of Christianity as this bad, um, this bad, um, bad thing, understandably so. So, well, so if you were to be advising the church, you know, some of the weaknesses that are there, like what are some ways that you would challenge their thinking and what are some things practically that we can do to better the relationship between the queer community and the church? Oh, excellent question. Okay. The, the big thing that I, we need to adopt better pastoral methodologies. We need to change our theology to celebrate queer people. What does that mean when you say pastoral methodologies? Okay. So pastoral methodologies would be like, okay, a queer person comes out to you. What do you do? Like in that moment, what, what do you say from that point? Hey, pastor, I think I'm gay. Or hey, pastor, I think I'm trans. Hey, pastor, I'm bi, pan, etc. What do you do in that moment? We need to address those methodologies. We need to address those methodologies because a lot of pastors in that moment would, or people in spiritual leadership at all would, would, would probably jump to, well, the Bible says, and this is like, that's not what they need to hear right now. Not your, yet another hot, another hot take on what the scriptures supposedly say, um, may or may not say, but they just don't need, we don't need to hear that right now. So that's what I mean, like pastoral methodologies. We need to really sit down and think about those pastoral methodologies. But I think that that will come once we do a better theology of what it means to be queer. I want to write a part of me makes me want to be a theologian so I can like write as a theologian about this. I want to do a theology of queerness. Maybe I'll just write it anyways. Yeah, you should. I would love it. I'd read it. You'd be back on the show to promote your book. Yeah. A theology of queerness that looks beyond just sex and marriage. Maybe. Yeah. And, and, and discusses all the different aspects of it such that even if you maintain a traditional biblical sex ethic, if you go around saying that being gay is broken, you're not be you, it would be shown that you're not necessarily being um, rigorous enough in how you think about what it means to be queer. So I think we need to do a better theology of queer, of what it means to be queer. And then we need to celebrate queer people. We need to go out of our way, ways as a church. I don't know how that looks, especially because, you know, as a church with um, traditional views, the best that we can probably do is be a welcoming church. And so as a welcoming church, it might feel even if we were to get to that point, it might still feel uncomfortable for us to celebrate queer people because we might feel like we're not fully on board with them. But I think there are there has to be something that we can do to celebrate queer people. I mean, all the contributions that we bring to Christianity. In in some way, we need to do that. So those are things I would I would suggest. We need to develop better pastoral methodologies. Um, we need to 
um, develop a better theology of what it means to be queer and of sexuality in general. Mm-hmm. And then thirdly, um, we need to celebrate celebrate queer people. So just as a, a as a, a warning, right, to pastors, what are some things that you would say, do not do this? Uh, or what are, like, what are some of the most hurtful things a church could do that we could just stop doing today? Oh, <laughs> oh, a billion, like a billion things just ran across my face. First thing, if you're going to tell queer people that you got to be single, stop preaching sermons about what you and your wife did. The pulpit is not the, op, the, op, the, 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 the situation for you and your wife to become front and center or the lives of all these. I, I'm sorry, stop it. Even if we should have the ability to do it, it's not expedient. It's like, um, like, what does Paul say? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. When you, when we're living in a day and time where you're telling people in this kind of, in this kind of climate that the way that you need to honor God is by refraining from being sexually with someone that would be most natural for you to be with. When you're telling someone to be single, someone in that situation to be single, you need to respect that from your pulpit and from your Sabbath school class, et cetera. We do too many, I'm tired. Oh my gosh. If I hear another sermon, I can't tell you how many times, and you don't realize it until you are in this situation where you pretty much, per your views, you don't have a hope of getting married. You don't really reckon, you don't, you don't really experience the angst the difficulty of, of having to hear yet another sermon on sexuality, which is really just another way of saying, we're going to talk about why marriage is so great for yet another sermon series. Mm-hmm. Stop it. Really stop it. Unless you are willing to, um, to celebrate the countless lives of other single people, gay and otherwise, and the amazing contributions they have made to the church. But we don't do that. We don't do what the, the church anciently and during the medieval times, they celebrated um, they celebrated celibacy. In fact, they might have gone a little overboard in some ways where, you know, they did, in my opinion, they went overboard and made it so that those who were celibate were actually better than the rest, you know, they're holier or whatever. So we don't need to go quite as that far as that, but we need to get to a place where we're celebrating, um, where we're celebrating um, singleness, if you're going to be saying that that's how queer people need to live, um, if, you know, um, so that's this one one, one thing that we, we need to um, do. Um, another thing is when you're, this is, I guess, comes when it comes to pastoral counseling, when a queer person comes to you, pastors, do not give yet another theological treatise on what the Bible says. Mm. Queer, we are already aware of what's, what, the, what the church, what the majority of the church says the Bible says. We're already aware of it. It's not transforming our lives. Why? Because in your efforts to focus on these few scriptures and this one point, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, the spirit of the law. You've gotten so caught up in the letter of the law that the spirit of the law, love and mercy don't even occur to you. We're so cold and calculating when it comes to this, that when a person is coming before you crying, you feel it incumbent upon you to go to launch into a theological explication of these texts. What about, how about we do our homework on what it means to be queer, learn to celebrate those things about the queer experience that we, that we do feel like we can celebrate without dishonoring God so that queer people feel validated. We need that. We need a, we need pastor. When I step into the pastor's office, I shouldn't feel scared that, the pastor is going to launch into a diatribe about how you need to pray the gay away. Guys, pastors, I'm speaking to y'all as a pastor, cut that out. Like that's just not, that's, that's just not going to cut it. Adam and Eve, Adam, not Adam, Adam, Eve, not Adam and Steve, pray the gay away. Cut that out. It's killing people. It's not effective. It's not robust enough to meet, um, to meet the needs of us queer people. Um, so Yeah. Um, so stop idolizing marriage, celebrate singleness. Um, don't feel like you have to, um, oh, here's a a great thing we need to do. We need to start advocating for queer people in the public sphere. Mm. Some people are like, um, well, 
the church doesn't need to get involved in politics and, and involved in social issues. Okay, I don't know what where that came from, but that is not Adventist history. Adventists were conscientious objectors. We um, fought against the Sunday laws and, and, and in the late 1800s. We were we stood against the Spanish American War, Spanish American War. Um, Ellen White wrote very very uh, very strongly about race about race issues, even advocating, even saying uh, one 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 thing that she wrote. If need be, if you have to go on the Sabbath to go vote in order for certain legislation that would keep slavery going to be abolished, you have the responsibility to go even on Sabbath to go do so. They were abolitionists. Um, so this idea that we aren't supposed to be involved in the public sphere, I don't know where that came from. It's not even part of our history. We're radical. We're supposed to be radical at least. So what I would say is, um, we need to actually get back. We need to tap into that root. When we see LGBT people are being killed and abused and that there is legislation being set up, how dare we stand by and say, well, I don't agree with how they may or may not be living, so I'm not going to stand up for their life. So someone's being killed, but because you're concerned with how they might or might not be living their lives, you think you have the right to withhold your help from them. That is satanic. Ooh. Imagine if Christ had adopted that same mentality, where would we be? Well, I don't want to go save their lives, Father, because if I go and save their lives, they might actually continue to sin. Who made us, who, who gave us the right to, if we have freely received from Christ, we ought to freely give to other people. Amen. So we need to stand up for LGBT, um, stand up for LGBT people in the social sphere. When we see trans rights are being stepped on by this president of ours, um, we need to stand up against that. That we have a responsibility to stand up against that, and we need to stop with this. Oh, I'm trying not to be political. That's a bunch of that. No, be political, be political. We're a kingdom of God, we are a political entity. <laughs> Basically, you're saying that our vote is you know, we are demonstrating our care for a person's humanity, not making a judgment about a lifestyle, exactly. Exactly. Like what, what someone may or not be doing, no matter. Their life is under attack. Life is sacred in and of itself. Right. Whether or not someone is out there doing X, Y, and Z, don't matter. Yeah. Their life, their their life should continue to go on, whether or not I disagree with how someone may or may not be living. Because that becomes very dangerous. Then that can mean, well, if I don't agree with anything someone may or may not believe or do, then I have just justified in my heart, in my mind, that I don't have to defend their life as long as I don't agree with them on something. That's dangerous. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm glad you brought that point up. So as, as we kind of wrap up, I, I thank you for giving me your time because I took a lot of it. I have lots of questions and I could keep you on here for another three hours, um, but I will be respectful. <laughs> My question is like, so, you know, as we're moving forward and as you're moving forward in your ministry and as the church is looking forward, you know, what would you, uh, what kind of impact do you want to have on the, the church community and on the community at large uh, with your ministry? And two, what would be the ideal scenario of how the church could be impacting the community or evangelizing if it was operating in its ideal form towards LGBTQ community? We could be a place of such beautiful healing. We could be a place of healing and hope. That sounds so cliche to say, but uh, we're not that. We're just not that. And not only for queer people, we're not that for black people, for women. We're not that for, um, for, for immigrants. We're not a, a place for healing and hope. So it's cliche because we keep having to say it because we haven't gotten there yet. We could be this beautiful place where we have LGBT people sitting in our pews and where we're able to be a place, even if we have our certain theology that we don't all agree on everything, we can still be a community that says, we stand by these principles, but we're not letting those principles just diminish our ability to see that you deserve to be sitting in, these, in this pew with us and worshiping with us, <clears throat> sending your child with us um, to church school or, um, or participating in the liturgy, whatever. I, I, we could be a place that is populated by a I die, I die a diverse group of people. We won't all agree on everything, but 
we're community. We're, we're community together. I'm really big on community. And I just, I just, I just see that where we're, where we have people in the church, maybe you have society, a people, maybe you have society B peoples in the church, but we're there worshiping together. We're not letting our theological qualms, disagreements, important as they are, get in the way of community where we're recognizing, I want you to be around, even if we disagree on these points, I want you here. I don't know what that looks like. I know there's complexities when it comes to membership and leadership. I understand that's difficult and I don't have a solution for that. I'm more concerned with the fact that we haven't yet prioritized people. That's my biggest thing. And I think once we get to a place where we say, we want to prioritize people as we hold to these beliefs, I think that we'll be able to better share our, we'll be able to share our beliefs from a different, from a place of graciousness. We'll be more, will be more loving, more accessible to people who don't agree with us. Um, we'll, be, we'll, be, we'll, become the fam- we'll become the family of God. The family of God has never been, there's never been consensus amongst in the family of God at any point. And I think that we are expecting that the family of God will only be manifest now if we agree on every single point, including this. Maybe that's not. A, maybe that's a thing that we need to put on the back burner so that we can focus on being the family of God in the more, in in in, in a more meaningful, in a more foundational kind of way. Mm. We've I, yeah, we had to stop prioritizing concepts over humans. Mm. And any last words that you would leave with the audience? Any last thoughts? Um, yeah, I would just say. If you're an LGBT plus person listening, God loves you. And um, he wants you to be a part of this church. Um, I'm sorry for whatever things that you have experienced that have made you maybe feel that God does not love you or that you don't belong in this church. But I just want you to know that God designed the church with you in mind, that you have a place. Um, and for my straight friends um, who have a lot of questions or who might be right tracking with me, um, be willing to check the ways you think about queer people, be willing to, to learn more and to be able to celebrate our lives. Cause there's, there's something that we bring to the church that you wouldn't be able to get if we weren't there. So I think that's all I would say there. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful interview. I hope to have you, uh, back again soon. Oh, couple book recommendations. Do you have any for us? Oh, things that we should be reading? Yes. Let me, give me, give me, give me a couple of seconds, actually. <laughs> it's yesterday, so I'm just trying to, yeah, let me make sure I can, I'm going to have these books on me. Okay. Ooh. Okay. So the first book was one that I already showed you guys, um, Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage. And um, Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie Kuntz is basically um, demonstrating how um, this idea of marriage being founded on romance and not on commitment is a newfangled idea and that it basically for me it just shows how we need to be careful in thinking um and ascribing to the bible the ways you know justification for why we live the way the way that we practice marriage now a lot of it is just um 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 just our this our culture it's not really from the word of god and i think i love how she goes about talking about how people did marriage ain't in history um, throughout history um, second book, mostly straight. I have not started this one, but I know the premise is basically some qualitative research on a, on a few men who call themselves straight. And through this person's research, he demonstrates that um, basically you're not as straight as you think you are. You're just not. You're just not. You. Everyone's a little gay. Everyone's a little straight. It, it's a, it's a it's a spectrum. You're you know. Yeah. How, how you feel sexually um, attracted to people. So that's why it's called mostly straight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that also will, I think if people recognize that everyone is on this spectrum, this idea that being sanctified, that we need to pray the gay away. Well, that means even heterosexuals need to, need to be praying the gay away because you're a little gay. I think it just kind of destroys that, that argument. Um, mm-hmm. um, now, before I show you the cover, it's not supposed to be pornographic. It's supposed to be demonstrating how a queer person, how stereotypical ways that gay men's bodies are positioned. So anyways, some people think so. Um, How to Be Gay by David Halperin. Um, he is a gay um, gay scholar who writes on how um, gayness 
is not just a sexual orientation or a sexual identity. It's a, it's a cultural orientation. Again, remember how we were talking about how like the, the, the American Psychological Association describes sexuality as not being about one facet. It's multifaceted. Well, he taps into that explaining how um, there's a whole cultural side of being gay that is just as, just as important as how I might be sexually or romantically inclined to other men. This, this right here, that's the one. That's the one. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm a single gay Christian. My buddy um, Gregory Coles wrote this book called Single Gay Christian, basically um, talking about his, his journey as a single gay Christian. Well-written. I have not finished it yet, unfortunately. But if you want to have a, um, if you want to gain an understanding of what it would be like for people like me, that's a great place to start. Um, another book, one more, is The Significance of Singleness, written by Christina Hitchcock. Um, um, I love how she explains how out of singleness, we're able to give a certain witness, a certain testimony to, um, to the glory of God that you, can't, you cannot give in marriage or you cannot give as easily in marriage. Mm -hmm. And she really said some things that I was like, oh my gosh, a straight married person just said that. Wow, I have never heard a married person say that about marriage. Like that's what the Bible seems to be saying. And anyways, I think that's really powerful. So, um, and then one, one last book is, I don't have it though. I borrowed it from Dr. Sitlachek actually. Um, um, it's called Spiritual Friendship, written by a single gay, um, I think he's a New Testament scholar. His name is Wesley Hill, Spiritual Friendship. Um, and he basically just talks about, he goes through his journey as a single gay Christian and makes a variety of points about all that friendship was meant to be, um, how friendship was supposed to be this robust, I've used that word so much, but it's supposed to be a very uh, um, fulfilling relationship and how unfortunately, unfortunately we don't do it well because we live in a marriage, a marriage and romance obsessed society. Those are my book recommendations. Um, the last one is, I forgot. The last one is, um, is guiding families. Um, if you're Adventist, or even if you're not Adventist, you can go to the, I think it's the North American Division or whatever, and you can you can get a few free copies if you just pay shipping, I think. Um, but it's a fantastic resource, um, basically just to help you figure out if you're trying to figure out how to relate with your LGBT loved one. It's a fantastic resource. Um, there's This is the Adventist edition because Adventists are so special. <laughs> there, there are non-Adventist versions if you need that. Um, but anyways, those, are the, uh, those are the resources I would recommend. Thanks so much for tuning in to part two of this series on the LGBTQ plus community and the church. I hope you get a chance to follow up on some of those book recommendations, which will be listed in the description below. So what was the purpose of these talks? The hopes is that you walk away from this conversation with a more nuanced approach to ministering in your local community and sharing the love of God in an understanding and informed way. You can follow Pastor Paul Anthony Turner on his Instagram at paul.anthony.turner, along with his upcoming YouTube channel, paul-anthony. If you're not already following us on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram, be sure to do so at the handle at AdventNext. You can follow me and all the quirky things that I'm doing at the handle at Kendra Arsenal. I enjoyed this time with you all and hope you all tune in again next week.